Hello, everyone, and welcome to BibleQuest.tv, the Tuesday edition. Glad you're able to join us today as we discuss questions and comments from viewers about the Bible. Questions and answers are uh, what we'll talk about. And if you have any comments or questions, we want to invite you to text them in. Send them in the Q&A button on the um, at Zoom app, coming in through the Zoom, window, uh, Zoom application. And um, let me introduce the rest of the team here. Jeff Smeltzer down in Exton. Hi, Jeff. Good to see you. Afternoon, Drew and everyone. And Stephen Rouse down in Harrisburg. Hi, Stephen. How are you doing? Hey, Drew. Doing well. Welcome, everybody. Good to see you again. And uh, Scott? Good to see you this week. Drew, how are you doing today? Good to be with you. And we have Jonathan back as our webcast engineer. Jonathan, thank you for being here. Good to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you guys again this week. And so if you're coming in through the uh, Facebook page, Stephen's Facebook page also, make your comments there and we'll be monitoring that there. Right, Stephen? Yep. Okay, guys, we are ready to go. It's going to be an interesting discussion today. We've got a few things that we want to talk about. Things that came in from our viewers. Um, the first one is talking about foreshadows. Uh, how many foreshadows of Jesus, like in Genesis 22, are there? Comes from Robert. Guys, why don't you first also give us a definition there? What is foreshadows versus prophecies? Yeah, well, why don't we have somebody take Genesis 22 and just run over that and review it in case somebody's not familiar with it to see what we're talking about. So Genesis 22 is the story of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham has waited a long time for the answer to God's promises about him having a son. And now Isaac is here. He's the child of promise. And God tells him to go offer Isaac on the mountain that he's going to show him. And Abraham does not hesitate, but he goes ahead and takes his son. And as they're on the way, he lays the wood for the burnt offering on his son. They go to the land of Moriah. And Isaac so asks, Isaac's laying the wood on him. Isaac has to do what? Carry it. Okay. And so they go to the land of Moriah. Uh, Isaac asks, Where's, we've got the fire, we've got the wood, where's the offering? And Abraham says, the Lord will provide um, for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. And so uh, Abraham is in the act of offering his son. God calls out to him, stops him from doing that. And then there's a ram caught in, in the thicket by its horns, and that's offered in place. So this is a powerful story of obedience, uh, even when it seems not to make sense in and of itself. But when we see it, from this side of the cross, it's even more powerful because here you've got Abraham and you've got his beloved son, Isaac. And then it just, the language there is striking. When the Lord first talks to Abraham, he says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah. Sounds like for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Um, and so he's offering his only begotten son. Uh, whom you love. And then he carries the wood for the burnt offering. Uh, Jesus has to carry his cross to the place of crucifixion. It's a three day journey to the place uh, where they're going to go. Um, Jesus spends three days uh, in, in the grave. And um, of course the whole idea of there's a, 
God's going to provide the lamb for the burnt offering. Jesus, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, so this is a foreshadow. It, it doesn't, there's not a specific explicit prophecy in this passage that says, and many years from now, there's going to be another lamb, you know, but when we see this story and the details that it gives in light of the cross, you can say, wow, that is striking. This is a foreshadow of what God's going to do in Christ. And sometimes, oh, go ahead, Scott. No, I was just going to say, what are some other details in that? But go ahead if you've got something else. Well, uh, one of the other details is the fact that he's supposed to go to the land of, to one of the mountains in the land of Moriah. And Moriah is a word that's never mentioned elsewhere in the Bible, except for Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, where Solomon is building the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. And of course, Jesus is sacrificed just outside of Jerusalem. And so you've got the location connection there. One of the things that I want to mention is, Stephen, you mentioned that take now your son, your only son, whom you love. Uh, a lot of the, uh, oftentimes when we're looking at one of these passages, these stories in the Old Testament, uh, where some event or some person is being described in the Old Testament, but ultimately it foreshadows the Christ. One of the things that, that should alert us that that may be the case is when the language that is used to describe the Old Testament event or character, when you kind of have to go out of the way to make that language fit the Old Testament character. And what I mean by that is here, take now your son, your only son. Literally, Abraham had two sons at this point right. in time. And so you say, well, why did he go out of his way to say your only son? And then, of course, you see the similarity to Jesus. And why did he have to travel three days. Couldn't he have proved his faith? You know, imagine if the Lord spoke to one of us and said, take your son to Alaska <laughs> and say, you know, besides everything else going on, you might wonder why all the way over there, but we get to the new Testament. We see the reason. So there is a foreshadow. And of course, novels use foreshadowing, don't they? Uh, can somebody give an example maybe of a novel and some foreshadowing used in it? Well, I, I don't know. This is not a great example. It's a movie, not a novel. But in Back to the Future, there's oh, yeah. a scene where uh, they, there's a car that crashes through and there are three pine trees and it knocks one of the pine trees down. And so now there's just two pine trees. Well, later on, there's a mall built there. Uh, when you go to the future and then you come back or however that works. And, and it's the two pine trees mall or the two pine trees neighborhood. Maybe it was a development. I don't remember which. Yeah, I think it was originally twin pine mall. Oh, is that okay? When it comes back in time. Now it's lone pine mall. <laughs> oh, is that what it was? Okay. All right. And I, you wouldn't notice it the first, you know, yeah. so I remember watching that movie after we watched it, my friend said, well, Want to watch it again? <laughs> and we did. And we saw things. We All saw things the second time that we missed the first. So, um, so there's the principle. Um, and, and maybe we'll have somebody mention one other foreshadow, and then we'll get to our question, how many foreshadows are there? So let me, somebody give one more foreshadow before we answer, uh, turn to the question, how many foreshadows are there? Do you think uh, there's a foreshadowing regarding Jesus' baptism? I think so. Uh, if you look at the book of Matthew, uh, it's really striking how many parallels there are to Jesus' early ministry and then looking back at Israel 
and the wilderness generation in particular. Uh, Matthew is the one who quotes Hosea 11, out of Egypt I called my son, which of course the circumstances of Jesus' birth lead Herod to kill the young boys in Jerusalem. They flee to Egypt, and then they come out of Egypt. Israel came out of Egypt in the Exodus. And kind of the next parallel is you've got Jesus is baptized, and Israel, as they came out of Egypt, went through the Red Sea uh, on their way to the Promised Land. And so Jesus, uh, th- there is a foreshadow there where Jesus kind of matches up with ancient Israel. Then after Jesus' baptism, Matthew 4, he goes out into the wilderness, wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. Israel went out after the Red Sea crossing, goes into the wilderness for 40 years, tempted. They don't do well with that. Jesus does well with that. Um, And then I think there may also be a parallel in Matthew 5, uh, when Jesus goes up on the mountain. We have the Sermon on the Mount. uh, When Israel was in the wilderness, uh, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to receive the law. And so I, I think that's notable in Matthew's gospel. Particularly. Some, of that, some of that is fairly subtle, and you're not going to see it until you become familiar with how thoroughly uh, the Old Testament is, is made up of foreshadowings. But you mentioned the, the temptation of Jesus. All in one place in Deuteronomy 8, there's a summation of the Israelites' wilderness wanderings, and it says in verse 2, you shall remember all the way in which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not, and he humbled you and let you be hungry. And there are several elements right there that we see in Matthew 4 when Jesus is tested of the devil. One, led by God, led by the Spirit of God. Two, in the wilderness. Three, 40 years, Jesus, 40 days and nights in the wilderness. Testing, tempting, same thing. Let you be hungry. Uh, so, so all of that is a foreshadowing. Uh, the Passover is a foreshadowing. The saved by the blood of the Lamb, the tenth plague, Comes and the Israelites are saved by the blood of the Lamb, and Jesus is the ultimate Passover Lamb. Really, when you look at the Old Testament, you have to say what Peter said in Acts chapter 3 is, is true when he said um, from Samuel on, and I really don't know why he said from Samuel on, but uh, all the prophets spoke of these days, and Jesus, when he's on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples, opened their eyes to all the things concerning him in the scriptures. There are many things in the Old Testament scriptures that at first glance you don't recognize to be explicitly a prediction of Jesus, but you see a story that foreshadows Jesus. You know, when Jesus was baptized by John, John was reluctant, right? He felt not worthy to, I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you, but Jesus said, well, this must be to to accomplish all righteousness, right? You think that has any bearing on the fact that Moses washed the priests before they become priests in Leviticus 8? Yeah, this Leviticus 8, 5. It says, And Moses said to the congregation, This is what the Lord commanded to be done. Then Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the tunic on them, girded them with the sash, clothed them with the robe, and put the ephod on them, and he girded them. Not very subtle, very subtle, but I, I, there's a slight, to me, there's, I see a connection there. Yeah, I'd be Jesus was both priest and king, but the problem with Jesus being the priest was what? He was not from the tribe of Levi. Right, right. 
Scott, were you going to ask something? Uh, I was going to say this also illustrates why the question is impossible to answer. The question is how many are there? Because sometimes you can see the one with Isaac is just like, boom. And, And how about this? Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, the Lord will raise up a prophet like unto me. Yeah. Unto him shall you hearken. Well, when Moses was born, what was happening to the baby boys? The king was trying to kill him. When Jesus was born, what was happening to the baby boys? Herod wanted to kill him. Yeah, trying to kill them. Um, and then who's the deliverer and lawgiver in the Old Testament? Moses. Who's the deliverer and lawgiver in the New Testament? Jesus. Yeah. And uh, who leads the people through the water, out through a time of trial on the way to the promised land? Moses, Jesus. Um, Who goes up on a mountain and comes down shining or or up on the mountain is shining? Yeah, there's endless of these. But then sometimes they can get into, is that one or not? So here's one I heard years ago. When Samson pushes the pillars down. The two pillars represent the two thieves on the crosses beside Jesus as he dies. So, so what that illustrates is the fact that, you know what, sometimes you can imagine foreshadowings and get carried away with it. And yes. sometimes, sometimes you're not really certain if it's intended or not. But the Old Testament is full of such things. And many of the things we think of as mere prophecies when you look at it a little bit more closely, there's a foreshadowing involved. For example, in the statement, a prophet like unto me, uh, at the immediate time, I think the immediate thing in view is going to be Joshua. He's a prophet like Moses who's going who's right. to follow up with Moses' work. He's going to be the successor. And yet Joshua right. uh, is not the ultimate prophet like unto Moses. That, that would be Jesus. Another example of that is where David is wanting to build the temple, and God says in 2 Samuel 7, you're not going to build it, but you're going to have a son who's going to build it. The immediate uh, fulfillment of that is when his son Solomon of David, who will build a house, builds the physical temple. But the ultimate is when Jesus builds the spiritual house, and so Solomon ends up foreshadowing Jesus. So you have a prediction of Solomon and then Solomon foreshadows Jesus who's coming. Yeah. So, yeah. so sometimes we look at some of these passages, we say, oh, there's a prophecy, a prediction about Jesus. Well, it may first of all have been a prediction about someone in the Old Testament who foreshadowed Jesus. Now, you, one of you's brought up the, the, the foreshadowing style in novels or movies, right? Yeah. I did. What was the time frame when that was written? So in a movie or a novel, one author writes it all at roughly the same time, and he puts the foreshadowing in the beginning because he knows what's going to happen at the end of his book or at the end of his movie. But when you have the Bible, which is written over a span of 1,500 years, and you've got some 40 different people writing it, how is it that the people who wrote the stuff at the beginning of that 1,500 years put the things in their accounts that foreshadow the culmination that's not going to happen for over a millennium in the future, and not only so, choose chose to word things like take now your only son, when you can hardly see a reason for wording it that way if you don't have in mind the ultimate son of God. And yet, whoever wrote this, and I believe Moses wrote it, 
hundreds of years in advance of Jesus, worded it that way, calling attention to the fact that it's pointing to Jesus. You mean that wasn't accidental coincidence? Yeah, that's that's what we mean. That's exactly what you mean. Scott. Stephen, you had a comment, and then I wanted to throw something in. Yeah, I think it's valuable for us to remember that I think even a majority of the Old Testament prophecies are shadows. Exactly. Um, there are a few that are very direct statements. Uh, Micah 5, he's gonna, the king is going to be born in Bethlehem. Okay, that, that's pretty direct. But for the most part, we see these shadows. And the more we read, the more connections we see. It, the Bible is a powerful book. And uh, when you start to see these shadows, again, we want to be careful not to see them where they're not there. But there are enough very legitimate ones that are powerful and helpful. And finally, I'd mention this, uh, an argument that you can make uh, from an unbeliever's standpoint, you could say, well, later writers could borrow a motif. In other words, like if you're wanting to write something today and you want to, you know, model it after, uh, well, do you remember when John Kerry ran for president? John Kerry? Yeah. Yeah. His initials were JFK. He was from Massachusetts, and he made to try to make a big deal about his yeah. service on a boat yeah. in Vietnam. Trying to, and, trying to look and sound like John Kennedy's story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you, but, like, for instance, the story of Isaac. You know, <laughs> this, is, this is not just, well, let's kind of include a detail that Jesus died. That's kind of one of the central things there that, that involved Romans and, and the Jewish leaders and the governor. And, but then after it happens and people didn't understand it, the apostles didn't understand it. Then in Luke 24, Jesus opened up the scriptures mm-hmm. and showed them mm-hmm. these things. So it's just so powerful. All right. Uh, anything on that before we move to question number two? I'll just make this observation real quickly. Uh, some of the most famous prophecies with which people are familiar. Uh, let's run through them. In um, Psalm 22, when he says, um, they cast lots for my garments, or when he says, they pierce my hands and my feet. Everybody knows that it's a prophecy of Jesus. In the first place, it looks to me like it's a description of David and what he's suffering, and he is foreshadowing Jesus. Um, Psalm 41, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Yeah. Probably that's a description of whom, first of all? Jonathan? Jonathan. is the only other person in the Bible that hung himself? Judas. And so you see then the foreshadowing there. Um, and, and then Isaiah uh, chapter 7 and verse 14, and, the, and the, a virgin shall conceive. I understand that, first of all, to be a description of a child that, whose, whose birth is described in Isaiah chapter 8, but who foreshadows the ultimate Emmanuel, God with us. So and you can look in Hosea 11.1, 1, which is quoted in Matthew, where when, when, Jesus, when Mary, Joseph, and Jesus go down to Egypt, it says, so that that will be fulfilled out of Egypt did I call my son. Mm-hmm. If you go and look at Hosea 1, it doesn't say, and in the last days out of Egypt I will call my son. No. It's not a prediction. It's a historical statement looking back. Out of Egypt, I called my son Israel, and you know I brought you out of Egypt. I came, I gave you all these blessings, and you rebelled against me. So it's not originally talking about Jesus. It's talking about them. But then it's this uh, repetition of a pattern. But then what that does for us is helps us to see that when God brought Israel out of Egypt, 
he had in mind something way in the future. This whole scenario is going to represent what God has in mind doing with Jesus in the future. All right. Did we want to move on to another topic now? Yes. Yeah, since, since you guys can't give me a number, how many? Let's move on. A, okay. A bunch. Uh, a bunch. A bunch. Like the sand of the seashore and the stars of heaven. Pick a number. All right. Uh, before so we get to that, oh, okay. we're going to do number two. We're going to do number two, which talks about washing. But uh, I want to thank Rod for sending in his question, which we'll address towards the end of the broadcast. Or, and if not, we'll put it on the list because it's a very good question. But let's get to number two, guys. When we look at issues like washing feet, John 13, 14, 15, uh, yeah, or the Holy Kiss, Romans 16, 16, 1 Thessalonians, and a bunch of others. How do we determine what is a cultural commandment with the people of the time or a godly principle that we need embody, we need to embody today, or even a direct command that applied then and applies now, Matt, Matt Vaughn? That's a good question because a lot of times religions and people that, that want to be religious, they, they go into these t- different things that could be commands or it could be just cultural lifestyles. And how do we, 2,000 years later, make a determination? What is it we're most supposed to be pleasing to God? Let's start off with John 13. How about somebody take us through the text there and kind of uh, help us look back uh, with the audience at what's actually happening and what Jesus says in John 13 about the foot washing. Well, if we start in John 13, we're, of course, at the occasion that is known as the Last Supper. It's the Passover meal that Jesus eats with his disciples. John doesn't put a lot of focus on it being the Passover meal, but he's gathered with the apostles, and um, and I'm going to start reading in verse 2. It says, During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he came forth from God and goes to God, rises from supper, lays aside his garments, took a towel, girded himself. Then he pours water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. After this follows a conversation with Peter. Peter balks at the idea that Jesus would wash Peter's feet. And Jesus says, I need to wash you or, or you're not clean. And he says, well, wash all of me. He says, no, just your feet need washing. And um, then we come down to verse 12. When he had washed their feet and taken his garments and sat down, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? And that's, that's kind of interesting right there because um, – if this was just about washing feet, they go, yeah, you washed our feet. Yeah, right. <laughs> but he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, or so I am. In other words, I'm your superior. And um, then he says, if I then, the Lord and the teacher, have washed your feet, and see the irony there, because normally when you had when you were showing hospitality to a guest or something, you might have your servant go wash their feet or provide the water. But here the Lord has washed their feet. And so if I, your servant, your, your, I mean, if I, your teacher, your Lord have washed your feet, then you also ought to wash one another's feet for I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. So he says, do you know what I've done? And then he explains what he's done and what he has done is put himself in a role of service yes. to those who are, who were rightly his servants beneath him. 
Yeah. All right. So then the question arises, should we view this passage as instruction for a ritual that we would perform in our church services? Uh, because Jesus said, do this, do as I've done to you. Or is this an example of Jesus taking something that was a routine occurrence in that culture and teaching a spiritual lesson from it? Let's look at what uh, the conversation between Peter and Jesus. When Jesus first said, when he got to Peter, what did Peter first say? Lord, do you wash my feet? <laughs> and yeah, he doesn't want it to. And then Jesus said, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So then Peter, being Peter, goes, Well then, wash all of me. And Jesus says, <laughs> No, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. <laughs> all right. And then he's, he's going to make a point about somebody here is unclean. That's going to be Judas. But there's also the point here, he's he's rendering a service. Peter has bathed recently enough that he's clean. But in, 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 in this area of the world at this time, if you had a bath earlier in the day, some part of you is going to be dirty. What's that part? Your feet in those open sandals walking on the dirt roads. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just want to interject real quickly here. When people have foot washing services today, they, they have come from home where they bathed and gotten dressed in their Sunday finery, and they've come in. Mother said, church. be sure to wash your feet because it's yes. washing day. Exactly right. Nobody shows up to a foot washing service with dirty feet. <laughs> <laughs> of all things, their feet are going to be clean. They probably had a pedicure. <laughs> <laughs> I remember being in, in Haiti years ago. I was in uh, Terre Rouge, a village up in the north. Um, there was no running water in the city. There, there was a pump uh, in one spot in the village. There was a creek nearby where you bathed and people did their laundry. The, the paths in the street were just dirt uh, and it's dusty. You know, the outhouse was a dark area inside some tin thrown up near the goats. And uh, everything was just worn down. Grass wasn't growing. It was dusty. Uh, a lot of the buildings were mud and stick with thatch roof. I was staying in a house that had a concrete floor, cinder blocks, tree limbs were the rafters, and, and just sheets of metal were the roof. But the windows had no glass, so dust would just blow in. And I remember uh, Elisa May brought us a basin in the morning so we could wash our feet. And I'd never really appreciate foot washing until that point, just to be able in that dusty environment to wash my feet. It felt really good. And when we look in the Bible, let's go back even to the Old Testament. What are some instances of foot washing that we see just kind of throughout the Bible? Real quickly, name someone. Well, in Genesis, the 18th chapter, when uh, uh, Abram is showing hospitality to the three men who turn out to be angels, the Lord appears to him, but he, he is going to provide for the washing of their feet. Genesis 19, when the angels come to Lot's house. Uh, Judges 19, you have a foot washing. And again, it's a case where you have a visitor coming to somebody's house. First uh, Samuel chapter 25, and this would be the chapter where... Is um, Yeah, Abigail... And she not only provides the water, she actually does the foot washing herself. And, and so you, you pretty quickly get the picture that foot washing was a part of that culture. Jesus, and I'll tell you what, 
there are going to be times like the time you described in Haiti today that in order to render an act of service to somebody, the most appropriate thing to do at that moment might be to wash their feet. Typically, in, in our culture, because of our, our travel in cars and our shoes and our air conditioning and all of that kind of thing, foot washing is not what most people need if you're going to show them some hospitality or render service to them. But I tell you what, you, we will find ourselves sometimes in a situation where visiting a, a, a brother who's ill or sick or elderly and, and, and suddenly they need to get to the bathroom. Yep. And they can't get themselves there. And we need to be what kind of people? The kind of people that Jesus exemplified in John 13, who are willing to do a service for somebody else that we might regard as some would regard as, well, that's beneath me. I, I, I don't yeah. feel like this. Yeah. yeah. And, and so one of the beautiful things about John 13 is Jesus says, now you call me master. And that's right. But basically he's saying, I am the master, but look where I am. And the disciple cannot be above the master. And the master's down on the floor washing feet. So this, you know, the, the corporate advancement, you know, uh, top dog mentality uh, of be number one, be number one. It's like Jesus said, if you want to be great, you have to become a servant. And the next day, Jesus is going to do an even more demeaning service, which is going to be crucified. Yeah. So we've got another thing like foot washing that also throws people for a loop, and that's the holy kiss. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got uh, Matt just sending in a question. Maybe unlike foot washing, he wonders if maybe holy kiss is something that's not so unique to that culture. Here's what I want to say about this, and I want to do a little experiment with you guys. Um, the kissing was very characteristic of that culture. People kiss today, but in our particular society, in Western, in the Western world, or maybe specifically in the United States, we don't routinely greet people with kisses. Yeah. When, when, when we read about a holy kiss in the, in the New Testament, I think it's like lifting up holy hands. The emphasis is not on doing a ritual. The em- emphasis is on when you kiss people, let it be a holy kiss. When you lift up hands, let your hands be holy. But let me do this little exercise real quickly with you. I'm going to just real quickly run through passages in the Bible that mention kissing. And at the point at which you become impressed with how frequently kissing was a greeting then, to the point that you're convinced it was much more typical then than it is today, you just say, okay, I'm done. I'm good. I get it. Okay? All right. Go. All right. So um, in Genesis chapter 48, verse 10, Israel, that is Jacob, uh, kissed uh, Joseph's sons. In Genesis 50, when Jacob dies, Joseph kisses him. In Exodus chapter 18, Moses met his father-in-law and kissed him. In Ruth chapter 1, uh, she kissed uh, uh, Ruth's mother-in-law kisses uh, her daughters, I guess it is. Uh, I'm going to skip some here. Samuel took the flask of oil in 1 Samuel 10, uh, poured it on the head of Saul and kissed him. 1 Samuel chapter 20 and verse 41. Uh, this is David and Jonathan, and they kissed each other. 2 Samuel chapter 14 and verse 33 
Uh, Joab came to the king and told him he called for Absalom. Thus he came to the king, prostrated himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. I give up. I give up. I give up. Well, let's hear a couple from the New Testament, just so it's not all Old Testament Israel. All right. So we come to the New Testament. And we have in Matthew, the 26th chapter, verse 48, Judas is going to kiss Jesus and betray him that way. Uh, In in, uh, Luke chapter 7, verse 38, uh, the woman who is uh, um, anointing Jesus' feet began to wet his feet with her tears, wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. By the way, in that passage, we have foot washing, kissing, and anointing all together, all of which are things that people kind of get confused on on this point. Go ahead. And one more text on that before we move to our third topic. Look at um, Luke chapter 7. That's where it just was. And, oh, okay, I thought you were in one of the different ones. So, oh, so, so yeah. And notice that when the woman did that, the Pharisee whose house he was at yeah. said what? What did he say in his mind? If this, uh, if this man, Jesus, were a prophet, he would know what sort of woman this is, and he wouldn't have anything to do with her. And that's not a quote. You'll yeah. So he's obviously not a prophet. Now, he thought that in his mind, and Jesus answered him because Jesus knew what was in his mind. <laughs> and he said, Simon, that was the name of the, the Pharisee, he said, I got a question, you know. Two men owe a debt to somebody. He, the guy that's owed the money forgives them both. One owed a lot, one owed a little. Who's going to appreciate it more? And he goes, well, one's forgiven more. And he said, that's why when this woman came in, she behaved this way. But then he says, when I came in, notice there's kind of a reprimand here in contrast. This is not a disciple of Christ. This is, this is a fellow who's sitting there thinking, oh, this guy's not even a prophet. But he had not displayed a degree of warmth and service that the woman had. And so there's kind of a reprimand there. Jesus says to the Pharisee, what didn't you do? When I came in, you didn't give me a kiss, which indicates it was kind of an expected cultural greeting and, and that kind of thing. Or at least if not expected, it was, you know, if you really wanted to do it well. In other words, when somebody didn't, you noticed. Yeah, it, it, Jesus is pointing out. He said, you didn't give me water for washing my feet, and you didn't give me a kiss. So but he did. So I think that passage, more than any other, helps show yeah. that both of these were a cultural thing because the Pharisee, who's not a disciple of Christ, is pointed out, you know, you didn't, you, you were rather reserved in your reception of I me. Mean, you didn't do these things. But she, not because she's read John 13, no, that's not why she's doing this. She's doing this because she wants to show her appreciation and service. And in that culture, that's how you would do it. So, so the reference is to greeting one another with a holy kiss. In, in a culture where kissing is routine, and yet kissing can be sexual, when Christians greet each other, they need to be sure that they're kissing one another in a way that is not improper. We may give hugs to one another, and, we, and we'd better be sure that our hugging um, uh, is is not something that crosses the line. I think of First Timothy chapter five and Paul's admonition to Timothy in verse two when he says the elder women greet or treat them as mothers, the younger as sisters 
in all purity. Yeah. I really believe that's the point of holy kissing. You be sure that your greetings to one another are in all purity. Yeah, if you go to church and you're really looking forward to the opportunity giving a hug to that pretty young lady, but you're not bothering to give a hug to elderly Sister Smith. Yeah. <laughs> it's because you're not aiming for a holy hug. Right, exactly. Well, guys, we got another third question that we want to get through yet today. And, and we also have another question that came in after Rod's question. So we got two All and three right. after yeah. that. Let's get to number three. This is a follow-up from the podcast on preservation of the scriptures. And, oh, by the way, we are we do podcasts, and, and a lot in our audience are, are downloading the program through podcasts, and I commend them that can't get to watch it live. And we still want questions coming in from them. And here's one like that. Do you find that people have a misconception that an ancient text, like the original manuscript of Isaiah, could survive until modern times and that nothing else could be trusted as God's inspiration? I wonder if people think that the original manuscript of other historical documents are sitting around in a library somewhere and that only the Bible has to depend on copies. I love that question. And, and just, to, just to make it clear what she's asking there. That's Jane, by the way. Good question, yeah. Jane. Yeah, I love that question because I, I think people do sometimes. They hear this thing that, well, how can we know what the Bible originally said? We're really relying on copies of copies of copies. As if whenever we read any other ancient writer, we usually have the actual handwriting of the ancient writer. If we're talking about writings from the period of time the Bible was written, say, for example, writings of the ancient Greeks, for example, we don't have their original writings either. And, and I think she's pointing out sometimes people suppose that the Bible is unique that way. The fact is the Bible is better attested as to what it originally said than these other ancient writings. We'll talk about that a little bit. I, I, but something you just said, I don't know, if, is it true that we have copies of copies of copies of copies? Sure. Uh, copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. Well, I don't know how many copies. Yeah, it, it, it depends. It, you might have a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, or you might have a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. You might have a copy of a copy of a copy. Yes, yes. Uh, you're copying. Oh, no. <laughs> I only copied half of it. <laughs> um, but, but so when, when, when Paul wrote the Galatian letter, and he said at the end, you see with what large letters I write unto you, if you had the original autograph, that part of the manuscript would have been... Paul's handwriting. Bigger. Uh, Jeff, you probably looked at some manuscripts of Galatians, and the manuscripts that you would have seen, the, those letters would have been... They're all the same. You don't see Paul's large handwriting at the end. Because <laughs> it, at the very best, would have been a copy. copy. Yeah. It might have been a copy of a copy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of a copy. Uh, but um, the, the, the fact is that they didn't have mimeograph machines. They didn't have email. Wait, wait, wait. You have to explain mimeograph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I think a lot I of people don't, don't understand mimeograph. <laughs> yeah. We're so, trying to explain manuscripts. Um yeah, yeah. Wow, mimeograph. It was I mean it's terrible way to copy. Uh, <laughs> they didn't have Xerox machines, they didn't have wait, wait, wait. Nobody today knows what Xerox is. <laughs> 
<laughs> Jonathan is shaking. Uh, Jonathan, no, he doesn't know what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have copiers. Oh, okay. So it was all hand copied. Uh, and let me throw up some some charts here. Let me hit share screen. Uh, and we want this one here. So when uh, I saw this question this morning, I mentioned we'd take a look at this. So uh, this is a video online. It says it's by underlings, uh, whatever that is. Uh, so if you want to see the whole thing, you can go to their website and see this. Uh, don't expect it to be high quality information. It's not, but this is a, an unbelieving attack on the existence of price. And they're going to make the very argument that uh, is being talked about here. And so we're going to look quickly at the argument and then respond to it. So did Jesus uh, do quick? We just got four minutes. Go. All right. Oh, we've got four minutes. All right. Let me, let me go quick. All right. Oh no. Something <laughs> pop down. I can't, it slides because something else pops down. All right, here I'll, we go. I got it. I'll stall for you. I'll stall for you. People, this is really good. When he gets it going here, it's really <laughs> All right, good. here, I'm ready. All right. All right. Okay, did Jesus exist? Uh, despite being such a purportedly significant historical figure, the evidence for his existence is remarkably weak. Other well, this is the bad part. But. This is, yeah, this is the part. Yeah, this, is, this is the video saying Jesus didn't exist. Other major characters in the ancient world, like Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great, were written about extensively during their lives and appeared in many official documents, even on coins. Not so with Jesus. Despite his supposedly being involved with major events that would have rocked the ancient world, there's no direct independence evidence that Jesus even existed. The only accounts of his life can be found in the four Gospels and Pauline epistles. However, the Gospels were written by completely anonymous sources several decades after Jesus supposedly lived. Uh, the Gospels, the, uh, the oldest surviving copies of their works are translations of translations written hundreds of years later, and they contain alterations. Finally, none of the books claim to be eyewitnesses. All of these are issues are serious red flags for scholars seeking to validate historical claims. But even if the problems didn't exist, the Gospels and epistles were written by Christians eager to promote Christianity, and it uh, cannot be considered, etc. Uh, let me summarize what that yes, said real quickly. Right. The, the point to get out of that is he's making the case that when it comes to other historical figures, we have accounts close to the times of those historical figures telling us about them, whereas when it comes to Jesus, we don't. And, and a lot of the stuff is just untrue, it's saying that the, our copies come hundreds of years Later in their translations and translations, we've Almost got everything he said was untrue, but we don't have time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Everything was untrue. Everything. Right. Go, go, so, go. On the comparison with Alexander the Great, uh, from Wikipedia, the primary sources written by people who actually knew Alexander are all lost, apart from a few inscriptions and fragments. Uh, so here's uh, let's here's the guys. That talk about Alexander the Great. Marian Plutarch, Diodorus, Curtius, and Justin. Okay. All right. And here's the dates of them. We'll put them up in a chart. So the here's blue, those guys. The blue, that's where Alexander the Great lived. Okay. Here, and there was a reference to his death back contemporaneous, but that's just a reference to his death. The okay. stories of his life were written by these guys. Mm -hmm. Where they live, Justin, we're not sure when he is, so that's why that's broad. So that's a long time. That's hundreds of years after Alexander. And do we have copies of them from those dates? No. Plutarch 
Uh, oh, Trogus is, uh, Tr Justin is copying from Trogus. He's a busy guy. Uh, Plutarch, our first copy of him is way down here in 1200 about. Wait, uh, so Aaron. you're saying our information about Alexander comes from guys who lived hundreds of years after him, but we don't have what they wrote until hundreds of years after that? Yeah, like a thousand years. years. And so look at this big jump. Now, Justin, there's 200 manuscripts from the Middle Ages. I don't have specific dates on them, so I just put a circle there. Now, with the New Testament, here's where Jesus lived. Here's where 1 Thessalonians is written, 1 Corinthians, Luke, okay? And P75, our copy of Luke, there you can see it, is written right about there. Wow. And, uh, or possibly some have now dated it at this other point. Thessalonians, here's P46, and it's dated right there. First uh, Corinthians, um, uh, again, about here. And then, look, P52, uh, dated way up here about the life of Christ. So if we look at Alexander the Great, look at the document date gap before you have the, the people that wrote about his life. And then we don't have their writings till way down here. Uh, or in the case of Justin, it might be more like this. Compare that to the New Testament. There's your document date gap. And there's your manuscript date gap. Uh, you can do the same with these other ones too. Or P46, wow. P52, wow. Okay, so. So what you're saying is the information that we have in the Bible about Jesus is much more closely connected to the time of Jesus, both in Absolutely. terms of when it was written and then the copies that exist today when they were created, than is the information about Alexander. Add the advantage that Matt brought in that there's an advantage to having copies too, right? Oh, it's, it, it lets you compare copies, and the copies show that the word... Who, how many people have gotten to read the scriptures if there'd only been one copy the whole time? <laughs> yeah. You know, if there's just been, you know, if so, in Antioch of Syria, if they, or if in Galatia, they kept Paul's Galatian letter, and until the printing press, everybody had to travel to Galatia to read how, Galatians? How many of the copies of Alexander do we have? Uh, there, of Justin, there's a few hundred from the, the Middle Ages. Yeah, we're running out of time here. And, and the last point then is, how many copies of the New Testament? Changed? There's thousands, but not thousands of the whole thing. Right. Like here is a collection of, say, maybe the Gospels, or here is Luke and Acts, or here's a collection of Paul's letters, or here's a fragment of the Gospel of John from maybe... That might be something for another week. Yeah. Yes, that'd be a good discussion for another week and how that all comes together. Guys, thank Good you. Good to be with y'all. Good to see everybody. Thank you, everybody in the audience. And listen, we got questions coming in that came in from the website, came in from other areas, and I thank you for sending them in. Uh, Jacob and Rod, we'll get to them next week, we promise. And we'll close with this comment from April. Also shows, don't just believe all the claims you hear. As Abraham Lincoln said, don't believe everything on the Internet. 